0: Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is January the 18th, and it is a Monday. Today, back in the day, January 18th, 1993, Martin Luther King Jr. Day was officially observed in all 50 states. It's celebrated the third Monday of January, roughly around the late Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday that's on the 15th. The first MLK Day was celebrated in 1984 after being passed federally in 1983. It took a decade for all the other states to accept the holiday, with Arizona voters being last to pass the proposition. Nationwide, Americans often celebrate the holiday with a day off and hopefully take some time to honor the legacy by working to bend the arc of history towards justice, at least a little bit. Many Portlanders celebrate with the World Arts Foundation's tribute to Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the first of which was today, back in the day, 1978. Well, technically, the day fell on the 16th of that year. The event, which has designation from National Martin Luther King Jr. Federal Holiday Commission, consists of speeches from city leaders, community groups, performances from diverse artists. Following that is a community engagement space where community groups, officials, and the general public mingle. In 1985, it gained recognition as the largest event of its kind in the state of Oregon, and the program this year will be broadcast on WorldArtsFoundation.org. Today we have Steve Glickman from Partner Station KXRW brings us 2021 priorities with CM Edbo. We also look back at an interview with Judge Adrian Nelson. X-ray. We'll start with your quick six news headlines. Portland caught its first case, the new coronavirus strain. Officials at U of P, University of Portland, announced Saturday, not their most auspicious first. They are the first organization to announce a case of an employee testing positive for that COVID strain. The first Oregonian identified with the more contagious strain since first spotted in the UK. They've been in quarantine since January 11th. Twelve of their close contacts are in quarantine as well. Three have tested negative. The others are waiting to be tested. Knock on wood, on the fingers. So far, the United States has seen fewer than 100 cases of that new strain. It's known as B117. Experts believe though it might be the most prominent form of the virus as soon as March. The university tested 565 students and staff between January 4th and January 10th. Three tests came back positive. It's not clear how the new strain was identified in the individual to determine the strain. Scientists performed genomic sequencing, but it's unclear what prompts a sample to go through that review. The new strain is not thought to promote worse symptoms. It is, though, more transmissible. Some good news, scientists believe the vaccine is just as effective against that new strain. employee had no travel history, which tells officials that new strain is likely spreading somewhere within the Portland community.
1: And now it's time for your daily dose of data. On Sunday, the Oregon Health Authority announced 799 new cases of COVID. The state's total is now 133,205. There was one death reported. Our death toll is now 1,800. Meanwhile, Kate Brown is making plans for the next groups to receive vaccines. On Friday, Governor Brown blamed the federal government for sending Oregon less vaccines than promised. She announced that because of this, the eligibility date for older Oregonians has been delayed by as long as five weeks. Brown said that Oregonians over 80 years old will be eligible on January 25th, while those 65 and older will be able to get the vaccine on March 1st. Around is prioritizing daycare, preschool, and K-12 employees. Oregon did not receive a promised shipment of vaccines from the federal government after it was revealed that there was no stockpile. All doses had already been shipped out. According to the governor, there are about 100,000 childcare, preschool, and grade school educators. It will take about two weeks to vaccinate all of them.
0: Somehow bankruptcies are sharply down. The pandemic has caused a lot of economic misfortune. Over 115,000 Oregonians are unemployed. But despite this, 2020 saw a big drop in bankruptcies, about 25%. According to the American Bankruptcy Institute, bankruptcies in Oregon were the lowest they've been in years. The trend occurred on a national scale as well. Consumer and commercial bankruptcies are also down. A few things that contribute to this counterintuitive trend. The recession was less severe than predicted. Besides a few major industries, wages largely recovered and property values remained high. A big factor is eviction and foreclosure moratoriums. Of course, what triggered a bunch of bankruptcies in the Great Recession was people not being able to make their mortgage payments. Well, they haven't been required to make their mortgage payments this time. Likewise, eviction, student loan deferrals, and federal relief protected many from complete disaster. Also, creditors are not being as aggressive in their debt collection. The pandemic-induced recession has impacted a narrower part of the economy, thanks in significant part, of course, to significant federal support. And so far, we've seen fewer total bankruptcies now than in the Great Recession of 2007 to 2008. We'll keep a watch out, though. Many low-income Oregonians still face serious threats as government aid has diminished since the end of last year, and workers in the sectors that have been hit hard are facing more and more prolonged unemployment.
1: Lawmakers are delaying the legislative session for security concerns. Last week, the FBI advised state legislators nationwide to prepare for armed protests held by potentially violent far-right actors. The Oregon State Police also advised the state legislature to avoid in-person meetings. As we reported Friday, in accordance with these suggestions, Oregon lawmakers have decided to delay the in-person part of the upcoming legislative session. According to Oregon Senate President Peter Courtney, quote, there's concern that state police don't quite know what the level or the intensity of demonstrations might be because of what's happened before to the Oregon Capitol. In December, Republican Representative Mike Neerman intentionally opened the door to let far-right demonstrators into the state Capitol building. Salem police officers battled with protesters, some of whom sprayed chemical agents at officers. In the aftermath, Governor Brown announced that she would dispatch Oregon National Guard troops to the Capitol on an as-needed basis. Oregon National Guard troops are also helping with vaccine distribution, and some are being sent to D.C. to help with security for the inauguration. One National Guard soldier is being investigated by the FBI for social media posts supporting the far-right groups Patriot Front and the Proud Boys. Inauguration week will be especially tense, Ren Cannon, the FBI agent in charge of the Portland field office said, quote, in terms of the potential for violence, I would say it's elevated over what we'd normally see. The legislative session is supposed to start on January 19th and will initially be held completely remotely while committee meetings are canceled completely until convenings can be held safely. Not everyone is staying out of the building. Democratic Representative Paul Evans said, quote, I spend generally two to three days in the office at the Capitol in a normal week anyway. I'm not going to let the yahoos keep me from my normal routine of serving the public.
0: Mayor Ted Wheeler is asking Commissioner Joanne Hardesty to speed up the street response rollout. Mayor wrote a memo last week directed towards Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, urging a quick rollout of the new police alternative service. Portland Street Response is a program that would dispatch trained but non-police officers to respond to some 911 calls. The mayor wrote, and I'm quoting that note, I ask that in your continued role as commissioner in charge of Portland Fire and Rescue and chief sponsor of the new program, you find ways to move more quickly toward implementation. We either distributed bureau assignments in December. Last week, he sent out memos to each council member detailing priorities for each bureau. Other priorities outlined included faster police response time and more public art to deter graffiti. The street response team will start out as a four-person team in the Lenz neighborhood. They'll respond to 911 calls related to people dealing with houselessness or mental health crises. The mayor suggested that Hardesty contracts out some positions instead of hiring all of the team members of city employees. That could speed up scaling efforts. Hardesty responded saying hiring outside agencies won't speed up the process. And I'm quoting now as the most significant investment we can make is to move faster to adequately resource our 911 call centers. Hardese pointed out one of the problems with contracting was the consistent underpayment of social service workers. The council meet in February to discuss expansion of the program beyond the pilot. Of course, it's one of the reasons they want the pilot to have done something so they know whether to expand it and to where and how.
1: And finally, some good news. The PDX Jazz Fest is on. It will be streamed from all over the world. PDX Jazz Festival has announced its all-virtual lineup. Normally, the festival is held all over the city in a variety of venues. Last year's festival wrapped up just before the pandemic shut the country down. This year, the music will take place over nine days, featuring 17 performances. Musicians will be streaming live from all over the world, including London, Havana, Cape Town, and of course, Portland. Events include a free workshop with Blue Lab Beats, a film screening of the documentary Herb Albert is and a performance by Portland trumpeter Cyrus Navajpur. The festival is free to PDX Jazz members. Tickets to individual shows can be found at pdxjazz.com. And And that's today's today's Quick Six six Local Rundown. rundown. Stephen Glickman from our sibling station KXRW is here with Seatam Edmo, Executive Director of the MRG Foundation. Seatam offers areas of focus and priority for 2021.
2: This is Stephen Glickman for KXRW Vancouver and X-Ray FM Portland. Today I'm talking to Siadam Edmo, Executive Director of the MRG Foundation and also a Shoshone Bannock, Nez Perce, and Yakima Native American. She previously worked as the Sovereignty Program Director at Western State Center, where she helped craft and get past the Tribal History Shared History Law in Oregon that established and funded teaching of Indian history and sovereignty in K-12 schools across the state. Welcome, Seattle. I wanted to ask you, as a Native American with a career in social justice, what issues do you consider to be a priority to focus on now in the Portland area and in Oregon and perhaps the United States as a whole?
3: Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. You know, the issues that I think are coming up for tribal communities in the West, and as well as locally. The number one thing I think right now is um, health, something that uh, folks in, in the field of medicine call epigenetics, so this kind of bioaccumulation, if you will, of trauma in the communities and bodies of American Indian, Alaska Native people as a result of historic trauma that has impacted our communities over a series of generations and that coupled with economic and you know wealth and income disparities have left us in positions where we're we're not equipped to have access to the resources that we need to really heal our communities i think it's partly genetics and and partly a disconnect to our, our um, traditional ways of healing and our traditional ways of being in community with, um, with one another in the natural world. So the, the intentional breaking up of families through um, taking children away, taking um, uh, parents away. Through um, different areas of Indian policy, have um, left our communities disjointed. So it's not only, I think, a biological thing, which you know is not necessarily my field of expertise, but I understand it enough to be able to, you know, say here and in other places how it impacts our community and our ability to um, to do advocacy um, to move to move forward to ask and request and, and demand and in, in some cases the things that we need
2: As I would understand it, losing say like Solilo village, being on mm-hmm. the banks of the Columbia, being able to have ample salmon, having a, a, a lifestyle that was developed over, Centuries that's been taken away. Is that something that you're working on? Is to get yeah. tribal members back to their land, or is it also like government resources have been put into the health and safety of tribal members?
3: I think it's a variety of things, you know, and and for me, it's not any one thing in particular. I, I have to go back to you know, I have a mentor who's who's passed on now, who worked on this project um, called the Yukon River Watershed Council. It was an intertribal council that spanned both Alaska and the United States and uh, Canada. And their goal was really simple. It was to one day be able to drink from your hand from the Yukon water. That to me is the kind of simplistic goal that we um, need and crave right now as tribal communities. And whatever interim goals right, happen between now, what we experience now, and that time when we're Um, experiencing much more um, harmony and and interconnectedness with our natural world. I mean, I think nobody is under the, you know, under the impression that we're going to all of a sudden go back to potentially like pre-colonization experience as like the, the highest expression of who we are as tribal communities. But I think um, having access to the, the wealth and materials and, and things that we need to, you know, get back to more green living, to revitalize our languages, um, to be in community with with the land that we were created on is, um, I think, I think part of the goal. So right now for me, it's not any one thing, um, although Salilo is, of course, a a place that I care deeply about. That's where my dad grew up. That's where my grandmother and her family on, on my Nez Perce side um, made their home. And I'm certainly interested in, in what's going on there and other river communities. But as far as my you know personal activism right now, it's really through the work that I'm doing every day to bring together the social justice organizing communities intentionally with tribal communities in ways that really leverage
2: both both movements forward. This is Stephen Glickman for KXRW Vancouver and X-Ray FM Portland. I've been talking today to Seattham Edmo. Thanks for being on the radio, Seattle.
1: Thank you. Today's observance of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day is a reminder of the long, long fight for racial liberation and the impact that one's conviction and leadership can have on struggles and possibilities. Oregon Supreme Court Associate Justice, Adrian Nelson, gives us present day inspiration for individual impact on collective vision for justice. Here are Judge Adrian Nelson and Jefferson Smith in a conversation from June about listening for community needs, addressing unconscious bias, and creating change together.
0: Here comes the judge. You're listening to X-Ray, thanks for doing that. I'm Jefferson Smith. I'm here live. It is nice to be back. And joining us in just a moment is someone who has lived a storied life. The first African American appointed to the Supreme Court of Oregon in twenty twenty one. She will have the high school have a high school named after her in North Clackamas, Judge Adrian Nelson, currently serving a six year term in Oregon's highest court. And she is on the phone with us right now. Hello, Your Honor. Good morning. How are you holding up? You know, I'm doing
4: pretty well today.
0: I got I to gotta ask about the high school, first of all. So when you get a okay. high, how does it happen to get a high school named after you? Like, because this isn't posthumous, right? This like you actually they can call you. You can be in the room when they discuss it or maybe not in the room because nobody's in the same room together all the time. But h- how do you find out about this?
4: Well, you know, this was actually a multi-year process. Uh, there were actually two votes for the school being named after me. In 2018, um, after a number of conversations, the uh, the vote was not positive. It was voted down. They changed the process. They
0: and so what the, voting positive. it down meant they were going to keep the same name, or they were to name it after someone else.
4: No. So there were two schools that they had to name. One was an elementary school that ended up being approved and, and is actually in existence right now. For uh, the first African-American female who got a law degree here, Beatrice Morrow Kennedy, who was part of many race discussions here in the state and actually was a, uh, a, a founder of what is now the Portland Observer, one of the two black papers in this state. Sure. The other is the Scanner. So, uh, and then there was a conversation about the new high school, and my name was three, no two. It was my name in uh, uh, Oregon Supreme Court. I'm uh, not Oregon Supreme Court. That's me. Oregon Symphony Conductor James DePriest.
0: i remember James DePriest. He was he was. A, he was a, it seemed like right. he was the head of the Oregon Symphony my whole childhood.
4: Right. You know. And so it was voted down. There was a concern about the process and they redid the process the school board did and it came up through that second process that james the priest and my name (laughs) were the two names submitted again and at that meeting in may of 2019 uh, which i did not attend um i they named they chose to name it after me so i wasn't in the room but i was kind of aware of the process and I really don't know who submitted my name because names were submitted from a variety of sources uh, in the community. And then there ended up being one which ended up being my name.
0: So were you campaigning along the way? Are you, like, throwing little hints? Are (laughs) you, like, making a few phone calls? At least having a couple of friends Uh, make some phone calls?
4: No. You know what? It is so... uh, It's a very humbling experience, and I can be totally honest with you that once I got the call that they were naming the school after me, um, people think I'm an extrovert, but I'm really an introvert, and I got so, um, not overwhelmed, but like, oh my gosh, this is a big deal. <laughs> this is a really big deal. So for two weeks, I wouldn't look at the building, because I can actually see the school that's being renovated to become the high school from my office window in my home. And so finally I went there and it was a full circle moment for me. So I'm very excited. They've done the groundbreaking a year ago. They have been continuing to make the process, you know, working toward uh, getting the building ready for uh, September of 2021. And I have been to the school and talked to the students and, you know, because I am one of few people that have something named after them while they're alive. Um, because people have jokingly said that to me. Oh, I thought you'd have to be dead to have something. Named. And I'm like, well, I'm very much alive. And I plan to stay alive. And I plan to continue to live and do things. Uh, I, I plan to interact with the students as much as possible while doing not only my job on the Oregon Supreme Court, but also being active in the community.
0: Well, thanks for spending this time with us. As a bit of background, you went to the University of Arkansas. You mm-hmm. weren't born in Oregon. You ended up here what because your mother had relocated here? I think you were born in maybe Kansas. No, yeah. Kansas City, Missouri, I think.
4: That's right. All of that's correct.
0: And so how did you end up here? What was the decision like and what was the transition like to move to Portland, Oregon?
4: So <clears throat> My mother and I always joke about this. I think she is totally serious about it. I'm not so sure about it. This is just a part of family history that I guess we'll never agree on, except the result. She said that I promised, because I grew up in a very close-knit family, I lived next door to her parents so my maternal grandparents. And across the street from my maternal grandparents was my grandfather's great mother so I had my great grandmother my grandparents in our home and she said that I said as a teenager that I would live near her whenever I had children and so when I had my daughter my mother said okay when you coming to Oregon (laughs) it's supposed to happen and we made an agreement that it was not something I wouldn't consider, but that I would come to Oregon for two years and then I would have fulfilled this obligation I had to her and I could be free to move and live anywhere I wanted. But during the two years that I was here, um, I, I did notice that there seemed to be all kinds of divides, but I did notice the racial divide and I asked people what was going on. How would you
0: notice and it? And why? How, how, I'm sorry. How did you notice it? How was it manifesting itself?
4: Well, it was clear to me that certain people lived certain places, so the redlining, um, that there was a difference in uh, people's earning capacity. Uh, And it just seemed like there was, for me, a certain, uh, as I moved around, because I would get um, a paper and see what different activities were happening that weekend, and if something was interesting to me, I went, and I noticed that there was not always a mixed crowd. And it made me curious
0: So what'd you do? You so, find this curiosity, you realize you you look around and you say, Hey, what's going on here? What do you do?
4: So I started asking people who I had developed begun to develop friendships with and some have continued and deepened, and they were honest. And out of that, because I'm legally trained and also I'm a literature major uh uh from from my undergraduate degree, um I went to the Oregon Historical Society to get some information and I picked up the book Peculiar Paradise that may be out of print now that talked about the history of blacks and it helped me understand where I was now it didn't make me feel like I got to hurry up and get out of here because I do know the story of migration and now more, more people know the story of migration particularly from Isabel Wilkinson's The Warmth of Other Suns but I realized okay I've gotten confirmation. What I'm sensing, what I saw is real. What am I going to do if I'm going to raise my daughter here? And how am I going to navigate all of this? So that's what made me notice. I decided to stay because I met wonderful people from all walks of life that would be honest with me and say, yes, this is what's happening. We're wanting to make it more inclusive and better, and we're hoping that we could have you and others come and help us.
0: How do you look back at that decision now, the decision to join your mom, to come here, to not end up in Kansas City, Missouri, not end up in Arkansas, but to end up in Portland, Oregon? How do you look back on that decision?
4: You know what? I feel like it was, and a, a Portland was not someone, a place that I even knew anything about, you know, so it wouldn't have been on my radar. I just feel like sometimes your life takes you places, if you're open to them, that you're meant to be. I feel like this is where I was supposed to live my life, that this is the place that I uh, raised my child, who is now a fully productive human being, adult who, you know, is in her own career, living her own life, which is something that is, you know, a proud moment for me uh, and a continuous moment for me. And my career, uh I'm not sure it would have been the same if I lived in the other place. I I feel like I'm in I, I came to the right place because I answered not a call, but I answered the request to come. And I thank my mother for it. That's why I talk about it all the time. She may have had other motive, another motivation, but I do appreciate her getting me here.
0: The book you mentioned, Peculiar Paradise: History of Blacks in Oregon, 1788 to mm-hmm. 1940. I think you're right; it's out of print. I went and looked to get a copy. And the only copy I could find for sale—I think there are some in libraries you can check out. The only book I could find, only copy I could find for sale, Amazon was selling for two hundred eighty-four dollars. It is a hard book. I to know, get
4: I know, but I got my copy about a year or so ago because it, it stayed on my mind. I did—I—I I, I don't know what I did with the original copy of mine, but I wanted another one. And you're absolutely right, Jefferson. Amazon was the place that I purchased mine. I didn't pay two hundred and something dollars for it, though. Uh, it was more reasonable than that. But I have one that is a used copy that has been well worn. But I have one, so you know, if you want to borrow it sometime. I got to make sure you bring it back, but we can talk about it.
0: I can I can give you my car keys or something. I mean, you give something of equivalent value, <laughs> so that, you know, you, if, you, if it was a trade, you you'd feel like you didn't get on the short end of that trade. Oh, but, oh. Okay. So I want to ask. We're in the middle of. Some would argue long overdue, probably a moral person would argue, long overdue social uprising. You are now ensconced Ooh. as uh, one of the higher-ranking officials in our state, but an official in a capacity that, you know, opining on... Uh, issues of political policy that are not before you as a matter of a case to a case to be decided is shall we say frowned upon how do you engage in a historic moment like this in a way that feels mm. most useful
4: you know i, I i'm glad you, you brought that point uh up during our conversation uh today you know it can be a challenge you know um The the judicial branch is one of the three branches of government, and you're right, we typically don't speak out. So for me, no one's going to see me out protesting, or I don't think many other judges doing that either, because we have a code of judicial conduct we have to follow. But it doesn't mean that we have to act like we don't realize that we're living in the world we're living in. You know, we've all been affected by COVID-19. We are all paying attention to what's going on. And Oregon, um, as a state Supreme Court, we did issue a statement about what is happening in our country right now on June 5th. And we are not the only one. We were not the first. We have not been the last. We were in the middle. They talked about how all of this affects us and how we need to, excuse me, have the public trust and confidence because we need people willing to support our current legal system and serve as jurors. Now, some people don't wanna come in for jury duty right now because of COVID-19. And there was an article written about that, even though there are some jury trials happening across the state. Um, But I know I need to remain neutral. So that when anyone, when I was a trial judge, came before me, felt like they were going to be treated fairly and it was going to be based on the law and the evidence. I understood that concept when I self-identified and applied for my trial court appointment many, many years ago to when I applied to be considered to be a justice on the Oregon Supreme Court. I knew that and I had to reconcile whether I could do it or not. I'm okay with it. I I made that decision long ago, 2005. So we're deep into it. (laughs) So it's, but it is heartening to see people across the state, across the region, across the country, talking about these long seated issues that have been coming up and seeing everything that's happened. I think we're in a moment. I mean, I think we're in a true moment. I'm very interested in seeing what happens in terms of action and things that happen in terms of changing what's happened in the past.
0: It was a long time before this state had our first black justice. It is not that long since you've been, I mean, it had not been that long since you've been appointed and then elected. What are you seeing right now in the culture of the legal profession in Oregon? What are you seeing now in the culture of the judicial uh, branch in Oregon? Any changes you're seeing over the last 10 years or, heck, 10 weeks?
4: Well, I think that um, the governor's appointments. So I was first appointed in 2006 by uh, former Governor uh, Ted Kulongoski. And he, doing his term, two terms, appointed a large number of diverse attorneys to the bench. And so that the bench is more reflective of the communities we serve. And uh, uh, Governor Brown has taken up that mantle and has appointed a large variety of people. And as a matter of fact, there was an Oregonian article, I want to say, in twenty seventeen about uh all of the various uh people she had appointed that not only were racially and ethnically uh diverse not only based on gender uh diversity but also based on sexual orientation and quite frankly economic backgrounds people who had parents who had had challenges from you know uh uh drug addiction. And uh, and other issues, as well as people who had come through the foster care system and become judges. So I think that there is a recognition, more so than when I first came in, that our communities need to be reflective of our uh, in our judiciary because that instills public trust and confidence. When I did the listening sessions in twenty. 20- 16, as a result of unrest in this country at the time, um, we heard loud and clear that people were not really willing to embrace us as they were. We heard loud and clear, gosh, this, you all don't really look like everybody else. You don't ignore that. You say yes, and huh. what do you do? You know, and so I think that my colleagues – are very much open to the idea. Yesterday, this is late breaking news, for years I have many projects that I do (laughs) because I really do feel like I'm supposed to make this world better than I was born, when I was first born. And Lisa Hay, the current federal public defender, and I collected a group of people uh, to talk about what we could do to educate potential jurors about unconscious bias. And as a result of our efforts in late 2016, when we first were contemplating on up until 2016, when we formed the committee, we have an unconscious bias video for jurors that we're hoping will be played both in state and federal courts, along with your juror orientation video so that People, if they're unaware of what unconscious bias is, they can understand the concept and how it should not play a part in their serving on a jury if chosen and that it helps them understand what their role is as a juror. So, you know, I could give you others, but I think that's enough for right now.
0: That is helpful. So you're saying now there's going to be, you're starting a new program to address unconscious bias in juries and judiciary. Is that what I heard you say?
4: So we have an unconscious jury bias video that has already been completed. Yeah. We've shown it to uh, one of the Oregon state bar sections. The litigation section had a litigation retreat in late February. uh, And we unveiled it there yesterday another judge and I did a webinar for the judges. We had already sent the link for on the state side to our presiding judges and trial court administrators. All of this would have been rolled out months ago, but COVID-19 occurred. And so we're starting it up in, in June, at the end of this month, June 30th, we're going to send out the link to all of the attorneys court license to practice in the state, and they can start asking for it and inquiring is it being used uh, during jury orientation, and if not, they may want to have it for their particular case in their courtroom. That will be decided by each individual judge. So that's what we're doing to try and educate pot- potential jurors. Within the Oregon Judicial Department, we have a strategic plan we're doing, and it should be, and it's a multi-year project, but within that, We are also uh, educating judges. We've always had an education committee and leadership committee where we talk about all kinds of issues, but we have training on unconscious bias for judges right now and resources. And we're also expanding those and providing them to staff because everyone who comes into the courthouses don't see a judge. (laughs) They may see staff and we want everybody to be trained and, in another role in my life i am chair of our oregon supreme court council on inclusion and fairness and so we're working really hard to have internal resources as well as bring people out from uh, consultant roles and trainer roles to continue our education because we understand this is an ongoing uh, educational process
0: for all judge nelson would you be down i know you've got a busy calendar would you be down for us to do a part two we're supposed, to, we're supposed to wrap this. You, you only booked <laughs> us until 730, and we appreciate even going over the amount we have. But I've got other stuff I'd like to talk to you about. Is it possible, and I'd actually like to get uh, a, one of our partner stations in with us for that, would that be possible?
4: It is possible. Jefferson, I don't know if I've ever told you no.
0: <laughs> <In the night. laughs> but Judge But it is so good to talk to you thank you so much for taking the time this morning appreciate your service congratulations on the high school are you just going to drive by it on occasion just stand outside for a while and just greet people as they come in hi there and they say, who are you and you just point at the school is that part of your plan
4: no it is <laughs> not
0: <laughs> do you do you wear your robes at the grocery store you should go and no, walk around town. Mm-hmm. Okay. I do
4: not. Right. I do not. Well, you the only thing that I do is wear it on the bench when I need to. When I was a trial court, I wore it, of course, when I was on the bench. And when students came to my courtroom, I would come down and talk with them, and I would unzip it. And it was a moment that they would really couldn't because they were like, "What are you doing?" I said, "I have clothes on up under it, you know, like I'm a real person." <laughs> and then it just seemed to make a world of difference. And we had connections and conversations and it was fabulous.
0: I've got to at least say something about the unconscious bias because and you said two things and I think in those two things you said a mouthful the representation the judiciary means at least two things one it means that any young person heck any older person who is looking at how justice is going to be applied can have a little more faith that justice is going to be applied fairly in their circumstance if they see roughly accurate representation in the judiciary the second thing i heard you say is that also we have to be really conscious as we apply power as the state applies power that it is applying it fairly and being aware of lived experience being aware of unconscious bias i caught that right any last word on that Mm -hmm. that's great but that's one of the things i want to follow up on in part two
4: no I, I I think you got it right and I and I recognize that it's a challenge you know and I have uh, spent a lot of time I do training on it I've trained our judges I've done presentations on it uh, uh, both for lawyers and firms and and like I said within our judicial branch but yes I'd love to talk more about it as well as you know others who are doing the work and and, and, and update you on what we're trying to do within our branch uh, to to to
0: address it. Judge Nelson, thank you so much. You're welcome. X-Ray. Thanks, Justice Nelson, Sadam and Stephen for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving your five-star review. And thank you, democracy. X-ray.